Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and that was He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother by, of course, The Hollies. And I've got the huge pleasure to welcome Bobby Elliott today, the drummer from The Hollies, and he's got a fantastic new autobiography out, It Ain't Heavy, It's My Story. Welcome, Bobby. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Nice to be with you. So you've written your book, and it basically covers... All the way back from your early days, focuses kind of towards that mid-70s period and then reflects. Is that what you aim for? Uh, it's 
I've always kept diaries. Uh, so, and the, over the years, when we've done a show, or been in the pub with the lads after a gig, I've been recounting tales, and the, 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 the line always came, well, write a book, Bob, you should, you should write a book. So after after uh, four or five years of uh, tapping away on this mic here with uh, two fingers, uh, the book is eventually published. Uh, and it starts when I was born. I was born when the Japs were bombing Pearl Harbor, mm. December 7th, but it was December 8th over here. And uh, I've, rec- I've tried to capture it right from me being almost a baby you know, and how sounds and music and rhythm got inside me and maybe want gave me the passion to want to play um so I've, I've retraced my steps right the way through from being a kid uh starting to my mother had a grocer's shop so it was uh, starting uh, you know I, I i started listening to uh, drums on records early records uh, from a, a, an uncle of mine who'd been in the RAF and he had some old glenn miller records and i listened to what did I hear? I heard uh, St. Louis Blues March by the Glenn Miller Orchestra, and I heard the drums. Mm-hmm. Not jazz, but it was like a marching thing. But then I got into jazz quite early on, and uh, at grammar school, I had a mate who encouraged me, uh, because I was always tapping on the desk with a couple of rulers. He, he, he saw that I, I could, you know, I could keep time, so to speak, uh, knock out a rhythm. I, I eventually, you know, bought a, a snare drum for two quid uh, and and built it up, up from there and then I was playing sitting in playing in little bands around here in up in the north of England in, in working men's clubs and uh, down the famous Nelson Imperial ballroom where everybody played there uh, Beatles Hendrix mm. Stack Show ourselves uh, so I played down there with uh, different bands and then I eventually met Tony Hicks who it's about four years younger than me. So he was 14, I was 18. And he had a band, <laughs> believe it or not, called the Dolphins. And I'd be with a few other bands, and I, I'd seen him play. And I'd also met his sister. I met, I met Maureen, who I eventually uh, who, uh, married. Uh, and uh, he, I would go around to their house. Before I met Tony, I walked Maureen home to this house in Nelson. Mm. And I had no idea about her, her brother. And she invited me in for a cup of coffee. And I sat on the sofa and looked to the right of the fireplace. And there was a Future Armour electric guitar propping up the corner of the room. And I said, who's is that? She said, it's our kids. He drives me mad with it. And that was my first uh, introduction to Tony Hicks's uh, house. And uh, I think a few nights later, I was stood at the front door saying goodnight to Maureen, and Tony walked past and said, his first words he ever said to me was, hello, drummer boy, or something like that. (laughs) And uh, I was in the Dolphins. The Dolphins became quite prolific all around the north of England, even though we were apprentices at the time. And uh, eventually Tony was headhunted by the guy who was managing the forming Hollies, uh, and they were excited that uh, there was a record producer coming up to see them in the cavern, and they wanted Tony to join. Uh, after a lot of pushing and prodding, he did. Of course, then I was out. I didn't have the Dolphins. I didn't have a band. A few days later, he phoned up and uh, told his mum that there was uh, an audition going with Shane Fenton and the Fentones. 
And uh, I said, I'm not too bothered about that. Anyway, uh, his mum said, well, it's, it's a job. Do you want to be a professional or not? It wasn't as simple as that. It was down in London, and I was up here in the north of England. Uh, my dad ran me down to London in his little A35 van. We stayed in some cheap boarding house overnight. And the audition was just off the bottom of Tottenham Court Road, uh, a little alleyway street up there. And uh, we were late, it was raining, and I eventually looked up this alleyway and there's some guy stood there. One, I could see drumsticks sticking out of his pocket, that was a clue. It was the audition for this Shane Fenton uh, and the Fentones. Uh, I was at the back of the queue, uh, I got the gig. Uh, I later found out that Keith Moo was number three in the queue and there was also Mick Fleetwood somewhere there. I heard that from another drummer who stood next to me. I, I keep in touch with a fellow called Lloyd Ryan. Uh, so then uh, I was with Shane. Shane, uh, incidentally, later became Alvin Stardust. Yes. But uh, my experience with them, it was golden. It was they were they were sort of hard pros, and I was some uh, guy from the up here in the in the grimy north. And uh, I, I soon started to realise that I could play. I mean. You know, pretty good. Uh, they had the same manager as, as the Hollies, and uh, within a few months, I was with the Hollies, and uh, in Abbey Road Studios, in uh, in sort of autumn of 1963. And one of the first records I played on was a cover version of the Maurice Williams song "Stay," and that was uh, mm. that was the magic started. Then uh, the red light went on, and we were moved into. Uh, into the unknown and into the charts. That's a great way of introducing our next song, Then, Now, Always, Dolphin Days. Cause it, so that's from, from a Holly's album about 10 years ago? Because that recounts your... Yeah, yeah, it's my... my I've, I've written a lot of poetry over, over the years, uh, even when I was a kid, but it's only just over the last, you know, 18, 15, 18 years that I've, I've taken it seriously. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think I wrote that with Mark Nelson, a good friend of mine. Yeah, Dolphin Days. It uh, it charts the the you know the mainly it's the story of Tony and I mm. coming down from the hills, you know, the land of millstone grit, and escaping from tradition where our faces didn't fit. We were apprentices, you know, mm. and in those days you were told to get hey, a lad. You, well, you're not going to make a living playing drums, and you can't make a living playing guitar. Get yourself a trade in your hands. It was all that sort of stuff, really sort of Victorian ish. Anyway, Tony and I escaped, and uh, that, that is a little story about uh, us, us two dolphins uh, get, going down to the big smoke. Sound we made, there was nothing 
You mentioned, uh, I think, the first single that you played on with the Holly Stay, which I think was their third. That yeah. song, in a way, was a bit of a landmark in, in relation to its drum sound? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Um, yeah, uh, let, let me see. That in, You must remember in those days, we were only recording on quarter-inch tape. Right. There wasn't really any overdubbing, and that, that was at the famous Abbey Road Studios. Uh, that was recorded in there, and we just had the drum kit, Tony's guitar, and Eric on bass. Uh, that's all there is on there. There's no rhythm guitar. I mean, you see pictures of Graham Nash with a rhythm guitar in his hand, but he was never really plugged in. Mm-hmm. So that was our sound. Um, the drums, yeah, I remember we had an engineer called Peter Bowne, who was a really class engineer, a bit of a character. He'd, he'd been there for, for years. And he'd done all the symphony orchestras and worked with uh, Thomas Beecham and whoever. And I think he was even the, the engineer on Johnny Kidd's Shaking All Over. So he, he knew a lot. But when we were recording Stay, I wanted the bass drum to sing out and, and accent the vocals, the backing vocals. And uh, Pete, I said to Pete, can you get more out of that bass drum? He said, well, I can't. I can't. He said, we, we just use the one mic over the drums there. I said, well, can we not put a mic on the bass? I was at BBC today. They put a, we had a mic on the bass drum. Oh, well, we find that one microphone above the kit is quite ample here at uh, at TMI, Abbey Road, sort of thing. Uh, oh, anyway, we had a break then. Ron Richards, our producer, he liked to have a break. So we were around at the Abbey Tavern, and I uh, bought Peter, the engineer, a couple of drinks, and uh, by the time we got back, he had a, an extra mic on the bass drum, and... Uh, I did hear from people who, who have been in the studio, you know, since that uh, they say hey, you were the first guy to get two two mics put on your drum kit at Abbey Road. I never knew that till till later on.
Holly's chart success increased and, and your fandom built and built. Just one look that almost got to uh, number one. I think there was a number of charts around at the time anyway. I think it's officially classed as... It was number two. It was number two. It didn't make number one, but we had a lot of number twos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, they, they, were, they were gushing out. Uh, so, yeah, just one look. Uh, you can hear on that one, though, we started double-tracking the harmonies. And, uh, yeah, that was quite something. When Ron said, well, you let's do the, do the do vocal again, we'll track it. And it's made it very choral, very very choral and commercially acceptable. Uh, but, you know, you, you can't knock it. It was a, a class record uh, written by, I must add, Doris Troy. Oh, fantastic singer. Yeah, we, we worked with her later on. She sang on an album of ours called Distant Light. She was one of the, back, she was one of the oh. backing the singers. We had three girl singers on one track. Uh, and it was, uh, who was it? It was, it was Doris. It was uh, Liza Strike and I think uh, Madeline Bell. <laughs> so uh, we, we worked with the girls again. Just one look, that's all it took, yeah, just one look, that's all it took, yeah, just one look, and I felt so Will be mine 
1964, you were, you know, you were on Top of the Pops at, at the very start. What was it like in those early days of Top of the Pops? Uh, it was interesting. We were on the very first one, New Year's Day 1964. It was done in in an old church on Dickinson Road, Manchester. Um, it was quite crude, but it was, uh, you know, you're going into the unknown. We just thought it would be like a one-off. We didn't, we didn't know it would run forever. Um, and uh, yeah, we were on there with with Dusty and Dusty Springfield and a few others. I think the Beatles were on, but I think they were on Ampex. Uh, the Stones were there, I think. Uh, yeah, it was, but it, it was weird. It was just this old church, and inside it was a, the BBC North studio that used for the, the news and other things as well. Something that marked out the Hollies in in that early period was you managed to take songs that were you know written in America and then add your own sound to them and mm. yes i will was carol king did the demo of that because that was a jerry goffin track yeah i've got the demo here uh i, I saved the demo mm. carol wrote it I, I think ron richards had it and uh yeah we thought well that's that's for us uh yes yeah, her version I, I do like her version but i don't think it was ever released but uh, yeah it was an important song 1965 I know we did two. We, we recorded it, and we didn't like the way we did it first time. So we did. It, we were up Scotland, and I know, I know we came down on the train overnight and, and re-recorded it again at Abbey Road with Tony using a twelve-string guitar, uh, the Vox job, and uh, that was what the single was. But we, I found out in later years that when they put the greatest hits it was volume whatever it was out, they, they, they put the wrong version on. So the, there are two versions floating around, mm. around one, one really being, uh, should I say, the outtake. And that track indicated the way that you shifted your sound in the 60s to 12 string, or some of your peers from that... Um, you know, some of the Mersey beat bands from from Liverpool just couldn't. They retained the same sound. Whereas the Hollies morphed across the years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you had two two great singers, Alan Clark and, and Graham Nash. Uh, yeah. uh, the main ingredient of that in those early days was Graham uh, would sing natural high harmony. He didn't sing falsetto. He, he couldn't sing falsetto. But he has a naturally high voice, and that the power of that coupled with uh, Alan's voice. Mm. That gave it that cut. Certainly on stage, it was like a, you know, it was obviously in the early days influenced by the Abbey Brothers. But then uh, as Tony, uh, as the band developed, Tony said, hang on, let me, ha-. I mean, he wasn't really interested in singing, but he t- he was a guitar player, or is a guitar player. Uh, he said, let me add a lower harmony to that. So he did, and he sang, uh, as you can hear, I think on the, on the, on the next as it develops through the 60s, the whole sound, you'll hear it. And I thought, when I first heard them singing together, it just sounded like a horn section. You know, it had that spread. I found it quite exciting. I'll be true to you, yes I will. I'll be true. True to you, 
Many fan favourites there. I'm alive, yeah. A uh, number one, it's always nice. 1965, uh, written by Clint Ballard Jr., an American. Uh, I've got the demo again somewhere. It, it was sent over for us. Ron got it. And uh, yeah, we liked it. And uh, yeah, great result. Again, there's a, the 12 stringer on there, and I've got the, the Tom Toms. Uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just running it through my head now. Yeah, always nice to have a number one. Mm. Ron Richards, how much of a role did he have in uh, choosing the material? Yeah, uh, certainly in the early days, uh, Ron was our guiding uh, sort of uh, headmaster, father figure, as George Martin was with with the Beatles. Uh, he worked with he worked with George Martin. Uh, he, he was uh, he, he was in the same office, and and uh, the, the, I think the others same secretary at one time then they've got the, you know shirley and and the other carol uh so it was like uh yeah ron uh george would pop into our sessions quite a lot but ron was a different type of producer to george george was more of a, a musician he'd sit down with the guys you'd see him sat down at the piano working chords out with them for a song ron was up in the box there and, and he'd be listening and he was a, a, more of a tin pan alley man he'd go off what if it sounded like a hit it was a hit and all this sort of thing uh, and uh, he, he he would suggest things. He, he, I don't I don't want to uh, decry his, his influence. He, he was very very important to us, uh, and and gave us a discipline 
I mean, when we first went in the studios those early days, we were a little bit busy and a little bit, you know, we've been used to doing a lot of live shows and it was, we were trying to still create that excitement that you do at a live show. Well, that's, you don't do that in the studio. Mm. It's very, very, very clinical, really. And that's, Ron uh, taught us uh, the, the discipline in the, in the studio. And yes, he, he could, he, he could spot it. He could spot a song, but he lost it a bit towards the end, but, uh, uh, he was very important, and he actually formed. He was. It was his idea that uh, uh, the company Air London was formed. Uh, I was around, uh, obviously in uh, Abbey Road then, when <clears throat> him and George and John Burgess and one or two others used to have the meetings, and you'd hear them talking about, you know, because they were on a salary. I mean, George was producing the Beatles, Ron was producing us and other people, PJ Proby and things, and mm. they were just getting a salary. And Ron said, "This is ridiculous, and they're making fortunes." So they formed Air London, and that was Ron's. That was Ron's push to. He, he was very instrumental in, in. Although he doesn't seem to get the credit now, but it, I, I saw it happening. Ron was very important in that, but he, he later suffered from ill health and and went by the wayside, sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it was interesting watching all that develop. <laughs> to late 60s the confidence within the band in terms of writing your own material increased mm. and you've got that Clark Hicks Nash 
brilliant combination of songs. Yeah, it was weird in those early days because for some reason, I mean, they were writing B-sides, and, and you'll see a lot of B-sides. It says, uh, hmm. now what is L. it? L. L. Ransford. <laughs> and I don't know whether it was a con by some of our early management to keep, you know, I don't know what was rocking <laughs> on. But the, oh, no, the three names, Clark, Nash and Higgs, it'll take up too much room on the, on, on the label. <laughs> and we, we, we fell for that. So you see there's, there's quite a lot of songs written by L. Ransford. That, that, that is, in fact, The Hollies. Uh, the first A-side single was a song called We're Through that the three of them wrote. And uh, uh, they wrote a lot of uh, good B-sides that Ron didn't deem really strong enough to be A-sides. But they, they did, there was a lot of great stuff that, would, that was on, on, the, on the flip side. So it never really... Never really got, uh, you know, airplay, and they weren't on albums either. So it was a strange way of of recording in those days. I mean, the great thing about having your own material is that it reflected stories that happened to you, because Stop, 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 that was, I understand that was about your trip to New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, we'd done, uh, I think the year before, we'd done uh, the Paramount Theatre there, and the guy in charge of it all, uh, let me get his name right. It was it was called Morris Levy, Morris as in, in the motor car, Morris spelt that way. Yes. And it, we we later found out that he was like big mafioso guy. But uh, we, when we were doing this 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 season at, at, at the Paramount and Broadway, five shows a day, by the way, hmm. uh, we we'd go and sit in Morris's office, and uh, he, he he seemed to like us. But we later found out that he'd conned so many bands. He also earned, uh, sorry, owned Roulette Records, which was a jazz label at first. But he he was a, a great character. I think we were we were quite lucky to to escape back home unscathed. But uh, uh, Mo Levy. Uh, so yeah, going on to the story of stop, stop, stop. Uh, at the end of this uh, this season, it, right before you go home, I'm taking you down this club. It was called the Round Table Club. We didn't know where we were going, uh, and there was drink flowing, and we we we, we, would, we could we could drink, but we couldn't drink that copious amounts of, of whatever they do, you know, bourbon and all that stuff. Mm. Uh, but it was a belly dancer club. There were belly dancers there, and and Turkish sort of music, and we were. We were I'd like to think we were quite well behaved, but we were watching and we were amused by the sight of this American businessman in his suit. He'd obviously finished work and gone into the club and he was well gassed mm. and he was grabbing for the for, for one of the girls and and, and, and then they cheek off and, and he'd be there. He's, Look, he's at it again. And uh, it's basically it's a story of, uh, you know, she, she, she's a girl with symbols on her fingers entering through and blah, blah, blah. And it's a story of basically him uh, grabbing uh, and he gets thrown out. The bouncers get him, and he gets thrown out at the end. So, uh, yeah, that's and that that's how uh, Clarkie and, and Graham and Tony got the the idea of that experience. Um, so that was the stop, stop, stop at the Round Table Club in New York City. The production on that track, and then is that sort of symbols that, that you do the percussion, which kind of accents that um, more Eastern or. Eastern Greek sound of the record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd dub those on after. Uh, Tony's playing a banjo on there that's got some slap echo on it. And uh, I, I, I remember how Peter Bound did it. He, we had a little bit of sticky tape on the loop as it went round, so it bobbled a bit. 
and yeah, that's very simple, but it it worked. Symbols on her fingers entering through the door Ruby glistening from her navel shimmering around the floor Bells of eco ting-a-ling-a-linging going through my head Sweat is falling just like a teardrop's running from her head Now she dancing going through the movement swaying to and fro She's getting nearer, soon she'll be in reach As I enter into a spotlight, she stands lost for speech Stop, stop, stop all the dancing, give me time to breathe Stop, stop, stop all the dancing, or I have to talked about George Martin and Ron Richards but I think in your book it talks that both George and Ron had a role in your record with Peter Sellers after the Fox oh yeah 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 let me see how did that work out uh we'd met Bert Bacharach in LA and uh he sort of took to us and I, and I, he liked the way we sounded and uh let me see how did it, and then it, we got back to England and it came through that Bert wanted to, to do this song, and uh, it was it was on it was on United Artists, which wasn't our label. It was just like a one-off, uh, so we couldn't promote it as a, as a record or anything. But it was obviously for the film uh, with Peter Sellers, and uh, yeah. So what happened there? Let me see. It was a time when we had the bass player called Eric Dear, the late Eric Haydock, a great great player, but. He didn't turn up for that session. If we'd been in the States for a while and he just wanted to stay at home, but you can't do that in this business. 
So we're down, we're then down in number two studio of Abbey Road. Uh, we've got Bert Bacharach on harpsichord. Uh, no bass player. So Ron uh, knew about Jack Bruce because he, he he played cello, but he also did uh, started doing sessions. This is this is before Cream. So we used Jack Bruce on bass on that, and uh, we did the backing vocals. And then Peter Sellers came in after we'd finished our bit sort of thing to overdub his uh, what was supposedly supposed to be funny uh, interjections. And he came in the studio sort of with George Martin. So it was like Ron was producing us. George Martin was taking care of Peter. And, uh, yeah, that was all right. Um, so, but uh, when when George was playing it back, it was like the Hollis vocals were like down in the, in the background. And it was like it didn't really make much sense. So Ron sort of like... Hmm. Fort Hour Corner, no, that's, well, that's too strong a word for it, but he just made sure that the balance was right because it was, uh, yeah, it was it was a, 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 a track. It was it was a title track for the, uh, the the movie after the after the fox, yeah. Who is the fox? I am the fox. Who are you? I am me. Who is me? Me is a thief. Are you bringing for for Mother Grease? So after the fox, after the fox, up to the hunt with chains and rocks. So after the fox, after the fox, someone is always chasing after the fox. On the track. Where's the truck? I won't tell. You must tell. Then I will lie. You make a poor poor <laughs> sister cry. So after the fox, after the fox, up to the hunt with chains and locks. So after the fox, after the fox, someone is always chasing after the fox. Why not work? Work is hard. You be caught. I never fail. All little cooks wind up. Not me, not me. So after the fox, after the fox, up to the hut with chains and locks. So after the fox, after the fox, someone is always chasing. Also talk about the fact you had tax problems by I don't know sixty six sixty seven and and that having self pen tracks like Kerry Ann helped the band get out of it. But you talked about owing like a quarter of a million pounds, which was a hell of a lot of money. It then. was, it was, yeah, it was. But uh, it was a hell of a lot of money. Then. It was quite scary because we were in New York at the time, and Ron was overdoing a deal with something else, or I don't know. He was over to see. 
maybe it was the forthcoming change of label because we we right just after that time when we thought we were we were going to be in in, in deep doo doo. Uh, we signed a, a new deal because the contract had expired with our old company. We signed a deal with CBS. <clears throat> that gave us a, an advance to pay off this this tax bill or, or whatever it was, uh, and uh, that, that that was a godsend. So yeah, it was it was a strange time, but but we got through it and uh, uh, we came out the, the other end okay. I mean, a lot of people don't. Uh, you know, I think every, most artists somewhere, unless they're very lucky, somewhere in the career, they, 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 they come across a dodgy characters or, or somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing, <clears throat> and you can come unstuck. But we, we, we survived that, and as you say, we we had the hits afterwards, and we we just stormed along. When the whole band in the studio was it a very collaborative effort, or did the songwriters have a, a dominant role? How, how did the um, the creative process go? Yeah. In yeah, sometimes we didn't, as time went on, we didn't spend as much time routining beforehand. Uh, right. We'd go in the studio and Tony had, uh, well, we'd get the key for a start and then Tony would sit down and we'd, uh, you know, sometimes we'd turn them upside down. I mean, in other words, you'd start with a chorus sometimes, you know, you, the, yeah. you, you go hammering like, you, you're going like a, a catchy sort of blast at the beginning and then drop down into the verse. Because by that time, by certainly the time of uh, Carrie Ann and uh, that 1967 period, we, we were old hands at, uh, at, uh, at realizing what, how they would, how it would program on a on a on a, on a radio show and, and things like that, uh, and and what with Ron's training and uh, you know uh, we, we knew how to to uh, create a single uh, and yeah it was it, it was teamwork. Um, the, the three guys would be working out the harmonies most of the time, you know. No, I, I should be singing that. No, you, you're too high. No, you go underneath me. Da da da. It was all that sort of mm. thing. But I'd try and get the the, the intros or the uh, the arrangement. For example, the end of uh, we talked about I'm Alive. That ending on I'm Alive when the tempo doubles up. That that's mine. That's mine uh, arrangement. That. So uh, and it's it's like a proper ending. It's not a fade. But that's that's sort of like the influence of the stage shows. We're still trying to create that excitement uh, and uh, being a little bit too eager. But having said that, you have a listen. There's a, the atmosphere is there, and uh, yeah, quite proud of that one. Then you played with older boys and prefects What's the attraction in what they're doing? Hey, Carrie what's your game now? Can anybody play? Hey, Carrie what's your game now? Can anybody play? You're always something special to me Quite Hey, Carrie Ann, what's your game now? 
anybody play Hey Carrie Ann What's your game now Can anybody play have Man With No Expression, which eventually saw its release as Horses Through a Rainstorm. Yeah. And obviously the Hollies version came in that latter period for Graham Nash in the group. And there's a very vivid period of the group that you recount in uh, your autobiography. Yeah, it was a, 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 a pulling apart time where that song was one of my favourite. I think it's one of the, one of the best Hollies songs. Yeah. It's, 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 and it's Terry Reid's involved there because Graham wrote it with Terry Reid. Uh, and the arrangement, everything, it's just it's just right for that period. But Ron didn't really seem to take to it. Uh, and Alan had his own ideas. And there was that, it was that period when we, we, the, I, was, I was feeling it sort of pulling apart. And it was, the, you know, it was the start of Graham uh, wanted to live in the States. And, and it, we'd all met, we'd all met the, the guys over there. Mm. Uh, but I, I, that's one of my favourite Hollis tracks. Is that uh, "Man of No Expression" or "Man"? Is it "Man of No Expression" or "Man"? With I think there's no various expression? titles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. There's a lovely bit in your book where you talk about Batley Variety versus California, which I thought was quite a lovely way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, Batley, Batley. Everybody was a Batley. Louis Armstrong. Yeah. Couldn't say Louis Armstrong was the first guy to open Batley. And there's no better jazz legend than Louis Armstrong. I mean, they were all there, the Bee Gees and uh, Siddhartha was always lived there. Uh, and they all bad mouth it now. But, I mean, they, they were taking the money. They, they, were, they were paid a lot of money. So they've been quite uh, hypocritical to uh, to bite the hand that fed them. Um, but, yeah, uh, had some good times at Batley. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you do a week there. It was amazing. Yeah, it seems like another world now. Yeah, I think it ended up being the carpet warehouse, didn't it, or something? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember the owner and his missus, Jim, the Corrigans, Jim Corrigan, and I think they were ex-fairground people, and right. she used to make money out of selling <laughs> LPs and albums and things like that. There's a man 
recording of holly sing dylan with graham but obviously graham had uh did he go off with joni mitchell or uh, he was with joni then yeah you probably read in the book about being meeting joni you probably know about that we knew that graham was going to leave at some point but he was he was holding back uh but so meanwhile it was tony's idea that we record the the album just because we weren't writing that much stuff at the time and we all as tony says uh, you know, we we love Dylan's songs, but they all they all sound like they need finishing off. Hmm. So so we finished them off, <laughs> not not literally, but uh, we were, yeah, we were, all the backing tracks were recorded when Graham was still with the band, and we hadn't cho- we hadn't chosen a replacement. So uh, you should probably know Terry yes. Sylvester came in as Nash's replacement, and we 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 put the. The tracks, the vocals on Abbey Road. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, it, it, it fell in place so easily, and it sounds so 
crisp and nice nowadays. I, I'm, I'm quite proud of that, uh, mm. that album. And uh, we're playing uh, Just Like a Woman, which for me works even better than many people's favourite, Blowing in the Wind, because the, the orchestration is a bit more, I don't know, low-key. It kind of fits the, the track a bit more. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just thinking about it now. I haven't heard it for a while, but it fades in. And I remember when we were doing it, I was playing the drums in one studio and Bernie was playing the Hammond organ in another. And at that time, there was a new engineer called Alan Parsons who only'd run the cables down from Studio 3 to Studio 2. So I was on drums in Studio 2 and Bernie was up in Studio 3 playing this the, the Hammond, so we we didn't see each other. We just, we just had the cans on, so we were just uh, we were driving blind. But it it's worked out beautifully, and, and as you said, the orchestration uh, is it Alan Chu, I think, did that. Uh, it's absolutely perfect, yeah. And Clark, great credit to to Clarky, Alan Clark, great vocal on there. I was speaking to Alan only a few weeks ago, so that's great to hear. Yeah. Alan Parsons, that is. Oh, Alan, yes, I'm, I I was in touch with him. he. I, he left a message a, a, a while ago when we were working in Germany. He was working in Germany and he left a, a nice message on the back of one of his uh, sets. Yes. Uh, his, his stage set, his set list. Uh, and uh, I, I just found it and phoned him. Uh, and he's living in L.A., but uh, there he was. He was back in Germany again. <laughs> but uh, Alan Parsons, he was, yeah, he started as a youngster at Abbey Road. I remember him starting. He's a tall guy, nice tall gentle guy and he turned out to be one of the best engineers there and obviously went on to production producing things like pilot and things like that but mm. he always got i mean listen to my drum sound uh, certainly later on on the air that i breathe uh, mm. and alan parson did that nobody feels any pain Tonight as I stand inside the rain Everybody knows The baby's got new clothes But lately I've seen her ribbons And her bones have fallen From her curls Oh, she takes just like a woman Yes, she does as she makes love Just like a woman Yes, she does as she aches Just like a woman Yeah, but she brings just like a Just like 
she brings just like a little girl It was raining from the first I was dying in a thirst So I came in here And your long time curse songs but a, a track that many people may not be familiar with and it's a touch from your album Romany that was written by Michael Rickfalls. That was a period I think you recount in your book where Alan Clark wanted to go solo but there was a bit of a tension on him having a parallel solo career so you basically said it's... Yeah, yeah, uh, well yeah, uh, we... Uh... We'd seen Mikel, uh, Mikel Rickforce, yeah, we'd seen, we'd worked in Sweden a lot and we'd seen this band called Bamboo and Mikel was the lead singer. Uh, and when Alan first, uh, you know, he said, oh, I want to do my own album and a solo album and Tony said, well, yeah, off you go then, do a solo album. So unfortunately that's what happened and it was quite an unfortunate time because Alan decided to leave and the local woman became number one in America. Mm. So it was quite unfortunate that we, there we were touring in America with a, with a Swedish guy, uh, who didn't speak, uh, well, he spoke English, but, uh, you know, uh, with a, with a Swedish accent. So he, he was a great, uh, he is a great musician and we've, we've seen him recently in Sweden. <clears throat> He's a very good, uh, very good songwriter. So he, he, he records in uh, Swedish music now, mm. uh, but though he was with us for what eighteen months, a couple of years, and uh, yeah, as you mentioned, touch uh, that's that's probably one of uh, that's one one of the best tracks he's, uh, he's written, and I think that was on uh, on Romany, and uh, yeah, nice song.
But Mikel, he had a kind of a different sound to Alan, so that oh yeah, <laughs> totally yeah. Uh, we didn't consider that at the time. Uh, no, again, wrong. We, we, he came in. We had a we had a song uh, called "The Baby." Who? Yes. It was written by uh, Chip Taylor and Al Gorgoni. We recorded that in uh, in Air London Studios, which is it, it used to be high above Oxford Circus. I often stand there in Oxford Circus and look up at the room, at the area where it was recorded. And, uh, yeah, uh, we weren't sure about Mikel because we thought, well, we'll try him out on this. And 
when Mikel had finished his vocal, Ron walked up to him and, and shook his hand and said, welcome to the Hollies. So we couldn't really back down. <laughs> uh, th- and that was it. So he was with us for a period. And uh, yeah, uh, and we, then we started to miss old Clarky and uh, he came back and uh, yeah, his, uh, his return or our return, welcome back, Alan single was uh, uh, it was like son of a uh, long cool woman in a right black, black dress, which is uh, uh, the day that Curly Billy shot down Crazy Sam mm. McGee. Yeah, it's got that real same sort of rock, rocking sound. Yeah, yeah, but there again, it's Alan Parson was who engineered it. He's got that. He's got some sort of a slap echo on the on the snare drum, which gives it a a, a different sort of sound. Uh, yeah, so there's Alan Parson again uh, rearing his head.
shoot your sheriff down From this period, I, I also wanted to include Transatlantic Westbound Jet because that's the song that, that I think you wrote the lyrics for. <laughs> well, I, I pretty well wrote the whole song, but oh. I, I did. I didn't want. I should have said the, the, the guys. Sylvester was with the band then, and Clark. Nobody was writing yes. anything, and we were, I know we were spending a lot of time in LA and at, the, at the Beverly Comstock. There, there was a hotel that was like going back in time to the old surfing west coast sort of films there and we we, we used to take the comstock and i i just thought we've been you know excuse me from the lyric there's a lot of toing and froing on jets twa and all the rest of it <clears throat> and i just i wrote the lyric and um who, who can tony wasn't interested in <laughs> writing it with me so i got terry sylvester and he uh, i lot a few chords and he he, he put, put them down and uh yeah, I mean it's not it's, it's not uh, it's not the be all and end all. It was just a, a device I thought to try and stimulate the other guys into getting back into writing uh, quality stuff. You know, was this the period where Paul McCartney was scouting things out in relation to uh, getting you on as a drummer for Wings? Uh, Paul was well. Paul was always popping into Paul being Paul. He was always popping into our studio and and either showing us what he'd, he'd just written or what they were doing or recounting something or other it was a time when i we were in number two and even linda and the band were in number three and he came in and uh he, he started talking about jamming yeah bobby you fancy some jamming mate yeah because i'm if i'm in a, a pub or a, a club or whatever and there's a drum kit there I, I, i'll be up and i'll be jamming that's why i think of as jamming or playing in a jazz group something like that hmm. oh i said yeah that, that'd, that'd be fine yeah uh and then he, he went back the, we, we we were doing something so as i'm walking out to with with our one of our technicians we call them roadies then but i was up there with derek wyman we were walking out and paul popped out with uh, linda bobby do you want a glass of wine and Come and listen to what we're doing. And so when we got into the control room at number three, <clears throat> he said, uh, do you fancy uh, jamming, you know, with, with, with that, our band? Do you fancy playing in my band? And then he said it, you know. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, well, my, my, I'm with the Hollies, you know, that's, that's, that's my life, really. That's what I want to do. Uh, so I said, I politely declined and, uh, by that time, Derek's pulling on my sleeve and saying, come on, the pub's going to be close or something like that. <laughs> so we, 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 we shot out around the corner, round to the, it wasn't the Abbey Tavern, it was the Heroes of Alma. And uh, yeah, Dick bought me a pint and uh, yeah, there, there we go. That was a, what do I, he said something about, oh, that, that, that was a close shave. <laughs> but uh, I think he was joking. But uh, 
Now I've got immense respect for uh, McCartney, of course. get to our penultimate track and um, what a song and I, I guess it's one of the highlights of your live set to this day the air that I breathe uh yeah oh sure um yeah it's uh Albert Hammond's song it was going back to Ron Richards secretary uh Shirley uh, and George they, they used to come up after they finished working their office <clears throat> they come up and sit in our control room see what we've been up to and they were on about this song that uh, Phil, Ever- Phil Everly had done on his album and we heard it we thought it was quite yes it's a nice song of course uh, the, the, our idea has always been if we're going to record somebody else's song we've got to make it better if, if it's possible you make it better mm. and, and I think we did with that one we, we, we laid down that track and um, we, we didn't have an intro it was just the, the chords at the beginning but Tony went down into the studio 
again with Alan Parson, and I know they were messing around with a, a Leslie speaker, which is the big wooden box that they have next to these Hammond organs <coughs> with a rotating sort of funnel in there that makes it wow the sound. And I think that, that Alan connected the, his guitar to that somewhere or other. So there's a couple of guitar, there's guitar and then an overdub, and that's that was the intro to the air that I breathe. And I think it just sets the scene beautifully. I've heard that your drum pattern kind of laid the foundations to, or gave a lead for what the orchestration uh, ended up being. Uh, well, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, that was Chris Gunning on that one, but the guy who did the orchestration for He Ain't Heavy, uh, John Scott, they both said similar things because remember our track, you know, heavy for example. That's El- Elton John on piano, me on drums, and Bernie on bass. That's just that's laid down, and whatever goes on after that has got to fit mm. with what is there on that basic tracks. For example, there's some of the drum fills on there that John Scott said, "Yeah, I, I phrase the strings, you know," da, da, and 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 Chris Gunning said, "Yeah." Uh, the air that I breathe, you know, da 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 dum da 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 dum dum. You can hear the toms uh, and and the fills, and, and he would phrase, he would write the part out for the cellos, French horns, and that. And uh, <laughs> I hadn't really planned it, but they were basically playing what I what I'd lay down on that that basic track probably about three weeks beforehand. Nothing to 
we're here, Bobby. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your time. We, we, I'd like to finish on a, a track that's more relatively recent and a track that you had a hand in writing, and that's uh, Skylarks. Can you tell me about Skylarks? Well, Skylarks, it's it's my song. Uh, it's it, yeah, all, all the lyrics are mine. It's uh, uh, yeah, I'm playing it for a while, but it, it was it was. I've always been a bird watcher. My father was uh, like an ornithologist, and I, I grew up as a kid. You know, I can tell bird songs by just listening. Uh, certainly, certainly the more common ones. Uh, it's just it, it came second nature because mum and dad were keen on the countryside, and I was I was dragged along, even though I was more interested in steam trains and, and aircraft. But uh, that, that stayed with me, and. Even now, I know when the when the first swallow arrives, or the curlews here have just arrived a month ago. Uh, uh, so I, I always take an interest, and I can see the way the world is changing. And if we're not careful, you know, we can lose mm. the magic that we have, and we must take care of uh, uh, of, of the, the, the countryside and, uh, and and the water and things like that for future generations. So we're gonna mess mess the whole thing up i mean there's something going on at the moment that's uh, uh nobody knows where it's where it's going to end and the, mm. the, the skylarks is a bit of a you know a bit of a refre- reflection on you know we could lose it all if we're not careful if we don't take care of our precious planet that's a lovely lovely way to finish bobby and uh it ain't heavy it's my story the autobiography of bobby Elliott is available in all good bookshops and Amazon and all those kinds of places. You're just carrying on touring and any plans for any new material for the Hollies as well? Well, I've got quite a few songs here that are unfinished. Our singer, Peter Howarth, he's a great player. He's a great guitar player, apart from being a great singer. But we've got some on my computer here that he he's always busy, Pete. He never stops working. He'll, he'll go around the world by himself singing and playing if he's not working with the Hollies. So it, we just need to get him back up here to finish these songs off. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, we've got one that we do on stage now called Priceless that I wrote about me meeting Sue and Pete. Pete played the chords. Pete, and Pete does it on, on, on the Holly show now and on this next tour. We'll all go off stage and leave Pete on stage by himself and he'll sing this song called Priceless. And it goes down at the end. It goes down. It's about me meeting Sue, my wife, after mooring, sadly, passed some years ago. Uh, and mm. it's about me meeting Sue. But at the end of it, the the applause, the warm applause, it's sometimes almost as as, as great as Ian Heavy. You know, it's uh, it's quite moving. So, and the way Pete delivers it, it's it's a joy to hear. So I'm, I'm quite proud of that song. It's just more, more, more from the Hollies as it should be. Well, hopefully, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, we're supposedly going to. We'll be in the states. Hopefully, if uh, depending on all this, carry on. Uh, in hmm. July, we've got the spring tour coming up, where we start up in Aberdeen and go as far south as Bournemouth, and then we've got an autumn tour again around the UK uh, and some work in Germany. Uh, the following year, Australia, New Zealand again. So it's, it goes on in cycles. Uh, Norway in Holland, Germany. So, yeah, it's uh, as long as the old body holds up and, and, and the mind, uh, we'll keep enjoying it because it's, it's just like you don't want to give it up because, mm. you know, you finish the show and you take a bow at the front, we're all in a line, the audience are on the feet yes. and you sort of float off stage and I get in the shower and I'm 
there's no better feeling. It's like a drug, and, and it's diff- very difficult mm. to give up. But obviously, I'll have to do one day. But uh, it's been quite a ride. It has. Um, everyone, get get out there and, and get what is a, a fabulous uh, insights into some of the greatest music ever recorded. Uh, thank you so much again, Bobby. It's been an honour and pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure, Jason. I've enjoyed it. Thanks very much. All right. Take care. Take care, mate. Bye bye. Incidentally In passing Why can't we pause and reflect Reflect What happened To romance What became Respect this golden thread, strands unwinding against all odds of legally binding skylocks, church bells, white cliffs, all is well.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.